what can you use with these unbelievable large amounts of salt? We developed a process which is carried out at room temperature in which we take the salt and basically compress it. And then we were surprised to find out that what you get is very, very strong bricks. Now, cement is considered to be the second largest pollutants on Earth. And the cement industry is responsible, directly responsible for emitting something like 8 to 9% of the total global carbon dioxide. That's right. a huge amount. That's unbelievable. And it is very clear that we cannot continue using cement. I think that we are going to save more than 95% of the carbon dioxide which is emitted as compared to concrete blocks. That's huge. Welcome to This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature, where we introduce you to guests who are working to save our natural world and then offer them a chance to take on a personal challenge to make their lives more joyful and fulfilling through exploring their values. Today, I'm here talking to Daniel Mandler. Daniel, how are you? Very good. Thank you, Eugene. How are you? I am doing pretty good today. It's been really, really warm here in Hawaii, so I'm, I'm kind of always sweating in my own house. We don't have air conditioning in my house, so whenever it's hot, we just kind of have to bear it. <laughs> okay, so I'm here in Singapore. It's very hot and humid as well, but Singapore... There is not even a single place which is not air-conditioned. And in fact, Singapore spends 40% of its energy for air-conditioning, which is no unbelievable. No kidding. Yeah. That is a ridiculous amount of energy. And I'm, I'm sure it's much hotter there in Singapore than it is here in Hawaii as well, and, and quite possibly a lot more humid, right? It's very humid here. And for the last few weeks, it kept raining almost every day. Yeah, it's humid and warm. Yeah. Yeah, man. And if they spend that much of their energy on air conditioner, I, I, I actually am not that familiar with how Singapore gets its energy. Do they get a lot of their energy from renewables or are they still mostly fossil no, fuel based? Not, no, but there is, a, there is a national program here that by the year 2050, all the energy in Singapore will be based on renewable sources. Oh. And part of what I do here is exactly on energy and uh -huh. at least this was the previous project was actually using nanomaterials for for energy and water so singapore is very much aware of you know energy problems mm -hmm. they are actually you know it's an island without much sources so they mm -hmm. have to be you know somehow to buy energy from the others or produce their own energy but they're doing very very well now there are many, many changes right. here in Singapore. I'm, I'm only partial time in Singapore during the year because normally I'm staying in Jerusalem, which has a much, much better climate. And I belong to the Hebrew University. And most of my research is carried out there in Jerusalem. Right. Yeah, I guess we should probably get into that. For any listeners who don't know who you are, you are a professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, though it seems like you occasionally teach outside of there as well. And you're doing research to develop a product to reduce the impacts of the cement industry on climate change. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It's only actually a small part of what I do. Maybe I should tell a little bit about myself. So actually... I was born in Argentina, 
immigrated to Israel a long time ago and actually grew up in Israel, served in the army, and then studied chemistry at the Hebrew University. After that, I spent two years in the United States, at the University of Texas in Austin, doing my postdoctoral studies and returned back to Jerusalem, where I actually became a full professor after a few years. And my research activities are really very wide. So I'm, I'm dealing with, a, for example, energy storage and conversion. I'll tell you an interesting story about that. We have been working um, on solar thermal conversion. And in fact, the largest plant in the world, which is situated in California, in the desert, in Ivanpah Desert, the uh-huh. coating, because I'm dealing a lot with coatings, that's going to be also associated with the salt. The coating of the solar towers there were produced at the Hebrew University together with another professor, Professor Shlomo Magdasi. So mm-hmm. we did that. Uh, I'm Recently, I'm more involved in energy storage, working on supercapacitors and batteries. I was working also on environmental studies, analytical chemistry, developing selective electrodes, a lot on materials, coating, for example, for medical applications, antibacterial, anti-corrosion, and so on and so on, up to even forensic science. I've been working on, on forensic science, mostly on the detection of fingerprints. So you can see that my activities are actually, they span over a very wide range. The story of the cement, or more to say about the salt, started a few years ago. And it was very interesting. Actually, it started by completely coincidence that I read during the morning, like I always do, I look at the news, and there was a very interesting uh, article asking actually the public in Israel to suggest or give advice what to do with enormous amounts of salt, actually it's table salt, that Mm -hmm. precipitate in the south part of the Dead Sea. Now, I have to explain a little bit about that to the audience. Sure. The Dead Sea, which is the lowest altitude in the world, which is minus 400 meters, is located in Israel. And basically now it's divided into the north part and the south part, completely separated lakes. The north part is the deeper deeper one, and that's where the water is taken and brought and channeled to the south part of the Dead Sea. And in the south part of the Dead Sea, both in the Jordanian part and the Israeli part, the Dead Sea is divided into along the in the middle between Jordan and Israel. The south part of the Dead Sea is, is a big industrial zone. And what hmm. is done there is, is divided into very large pools. The water is evaporated and then initially the sodium chloride, which is the table salt, precipitates. The problem is that nobody uses this salt. And actually, it's a byproduct which is useless right now. And then the the remaining of the water is transferred to another pool and then starts to crystallize one of the minerals, which is the source for making potash, also in Jordan and in Israel. So the main Mm. product from the Dead Sea is potash, And this means that every year, this byproduct that nobody uses, which is table salt, 
precipitates. And because of that, it's a huge amount. Only in the Israeli side precipitate something like 20 million tons a year. Holy and this cow. causes actually the level of the water to go up because there is a constant layer which is formed of sodium chloride of salt that precipitates. And because of that, the level of the water goes up. And it slowly reaches all the places there. There are many hotels located next to the Dead Sea. And there was a big problem. What to do with that? There was no solution. Because it's useless. Nobody uses this salt. And actually the article was asking the public, can you suggest what to do with this salt? Hmm. I participated in this uh, blog or something like that. And the only suggestion Uh or the only advice I wrote was... You have to be crazy to suggest something that might be worth millions. So whether it's worth millions or not, it's the future to say. But I started thinking about actually what can you use with these unbelievable large amounts of salt. So my first question was, what do you normally do with large amounts of material? And the answer to that was, You use it in construction. That's where you use large amount of material. And the second question was, can you actually use salt as a constructing material? Now, this is, in a way, it's a stupid question because everybody knows for that you don't have to be a professor at the Hebrew University to know that salt is highly soluble in water. But the fact is that it's not a completely new idea. And this has already been used and is still used in dry places like the Salar in Bolivia, or for example, in the Sahara, where you have excess of salt. Normally they mix the salt with some soil and they make some bricks. So obviously this was not the solution I was looking at, but since I told you that I was, I'm working on coatings, my idea was let's compress the salt and coat it with a coating which is impermeable to water. So the idea was so crazy that initially I didn't even ask and didn't send any grant because I thought everybody is going to laugh about me. <laughs> and we started working on, on some soft money. And then after one or two years, we realized that actually it's working very, very well. And we developed a process which is carried out at room temperature in which we take the salt and basically compress it. And then we were surprised to find out that what you get is very, very strong bricks that are much, much less soluble. We had to add about 5% of some additional materials because of different reasons. And these also reduce the solubility of these salt bricks tremendously. Mm -hmm. And then we started meeting different governmental offices. And one one of them was the Israeli Ministry of the Protection of the Environment. And then I found out that there is a huge problem with the cement nowadays. Now, cement, again, for the audience who are not really familiar with that, is considered to be the second largest pollutants on Earth. Hmm. And why is that? Because, Because of two reasons. One is that the cement industry, it's a very high temperature process. It's carried out normally at around 1,500 degrees, which means that you need tremendously large amounts of energy so you burn some material and the second reason for that 
is that in the process of making cement, you actually take calcium carbonate and you heat it, and this evolves carbon dioxide. So it happens that the industry, the cement industry, is responsible, directly responsible for emitting something like 8 to 9% of the total global carbon dioxide which is emitted by anthropogenic, which means by man-made activities. That's right. a huge amount. That's unbelievable. And it is very clear that we cannot continue using cement. That's going to change. So right. something has to happen in order that we will start looking for other materials. And then when I found that out, I thought, well, maybe here we can actually catch two birds with one stone because we can use a byproduct which nobody uses that actually affects the environment. By the way, the solution, and this was a decision my, made by the Israeli government, is that the salt which deposits there in the south part of the Dead Sea has to be transferred to the north part of the Dead Sea and dumped there. And that's a huge operation that will cost more than like 2 billion US dollars. And it's useless because you don't get anything out of that. Not to mention mm -hmm. that the effect on the environment is going to be unbelievably huge. So on one hand, you have a byproduct which nobody uses. And here I have to say also and to add that the excess of salt is not only a problem in Israel. It's a problem worldwide. You have a very large mountain of salt in Germany, which its nickname is called Kali from Kalimanjaro. And this is, again, it's a byproduct which was accumulated by the largest potash company in the world, in Germany. You have such mountains of, of salt in Belarus, in Spain, and in the US, in many, many different places. Think about, for example, the desalination process. Israel is, is the leading in the desalination in the world. We are, by the way, most of the drinking water in Israel comes from the sea nowadays. And we have mm. very large desalination plants. And they take this, you know, slurry of salt and they dump it back to the sea, which is against uh, the Barcelona, I think it's called Barcelona Agreement, that uh -huh. does not really allow you to dump into the sea anything because of the environmental effect. So right. a very large excess of sodium chloride, which is not a bad material. It's not dangerous. It's not flammable. It's not toxic. It's green, actually. Right. And nobody uses it. And on the other hand, you have a material, cement, which, you know, is really responsible for a large part of huge part of carbon dioxide emission. So can we actually replace cement by salt? That's the question. Right. So after two years, we got some funding from the Ministry of Innovation in Israel, and we worked on that. And we have now a worldwide patent, and it's working very, very well. So we can make, I, I can show you if you want, I can show you bricks that are made of salt. It's very easy, uh -huh. uh, very stable. I don't know. I can upload a, a PowerPoint and show you. I can send you a picture of that, whatever you Absolutely. want. Absolutely. Yes, please. And, yeah, and I'll show you. It's actually, I give these lectures everywhere, also to high school children uh -huh. and in different places. 
And usually I take this with me. If I were in Israel, I could have shown you that directly to you, but I didn't carry them to Singapore. Uh-huh. So in fact, it's working very well. Another question is, can we really replace cement by salt? Now that's a big problem here. And that I would say two major obstacles for that. One is the fact that the construction industry is extremely conservative. To introduce a new material into the construction industry takes many years. For example, gibbs, gypsum, that is now used everywhere, it took more than 20 years to introduce. So it's going to take a long time. The the construction industry is not the high-tech industry. One of the managers, because I met also many of the companies in Israel, so one of the managers, they told me, look, construction industry is not low-tech industry, is no-tech industry. (laughs) So, uh, So that's a major problem, to convince that we can really introduce a new material. Secondly, even more important is the fact that, look, there is not even one company that I know that will go and invest money to save the world. It doesn't work like that. Hmm. It will save the world because it's worth it. Think about what happened to the electrical cars, okay? Electrical cars would not have been on the streets nowadays if, first in California and then in other places, the regulator had not been issued and established rules and actually created the economical incentive for companies to go into that. Hmm. Same thing should happen with substitutes for cement. If the regulation, if the regulator does not change the rules of the game and does not create the economic incentive for companies to start you know, investing and looking for substitutes for cement, it's not going to happen. And believe me, I met, I don't know how many companies and so on. And usually the question was at the end, how much is that going to cost me? Right. Now that's an interesting question by itself. How much does it cost? And I can tell you that we know more or less that salt bricks will be able to compete in terms of price with cement bricks, especially in places like Israel or other places where you have excess of salt. That's not a problem. The main cost will be simply to transfer the the salt to the place where you make the bricks or to transport the the bricks to the building places. Right. Uh, So that's not a question, but that's not a strong enough driving force for the companies to go into that. And that's a major problem that people have to understand that when we speak about environmental issues or we speak about, you know, the need to change our habits and and use other materials. And I think Bill Gates has a very nice one minute movie about that, that it's not enough to go into renewable energies. We have to do also something else. We have to stop using materials that are very high in energy. And he mentions there cement, for example, the uh, iron, the steel industry is another, mm-hmm. another example for that. We have to change. We cannot go on and use the same materials as we continuously work. 
Now, my example is a very interesting, very classical example of what's called circular economy. I'm using a byproduct, which is right now useless, mm-hmm. that actually causes environmental problems and substitute it and make it a valuable commodity that we can use and use it in a way also to solve some major problems in the environment. Well, I'll let you ask. <laughs> so, <laughs> speaking too much. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It sounds to me like, like this is something that is similar to a lot of the solutions, I guess, that we have in the climate space in that the technology is there, but the laws and the regulations just haven't caught up to it yet. Is that a pretty accurate description? Yeah, in a way. Well, I must say, look, we work on it in our lab. Okay, so the proof of concept is there. There is a patent. There is still a way to go from the laboratory to a final, you know, product. The jump immediately from the laboratory to a final product. So it has to go through a pilot. There are many issues that we have not examined. There are many questions about that. I can go into that and explain. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's true that in many cases the technology is there. Or at least you can see a solution that will solve some of the problems. But the question is how to make it a product that will indeed go into the market. And I've seen many cases where the technology was there and was working well, and eventually it did not become a product for many reasons. I mean, there are reasons because of regulation, there are reasons even about you know, things like how do you, you actually force it to enter the market. In this case, it's, it's very clear that the regulator has a very important role. Without regulation, without forcing companies and creating the driving force, nothing is going to happen. And it's really exactly the same like with the electrical cars. Now I'm also involved in, there is a a new story, it's not so new, about hydrogen economy. Hydrogen is Mm -hmm. is going to be, I think, in my eyes, hydrogen is going to be the major fuel in the future. And again, there are some obstacles towards that because technologically speaking, everything is, is more or less solved. But the question is, how can we force countries and so to go into hydrogen and green hydrogen or blue hydrogen, whatever? That's an interesting story by itself. And stop using some other things like, you know, fossil fuels and so on. And it's a combination of technology and obviously regulation, public opinion. It's a whole process that has to somehow he controlled in a way that he will go to the correct place. Now, it sounds like you've pretty much got it all worked out as to how you produce the blocks, how you manufacture them, and you've looked at the costs of producing them versus the costs of regular cement. How are they in actual use? I mean, are, are they pretty much identical to just using like CMU blocks in construction? Okay, so that's that's very good questions, and I I don't think I've I've solved everything. So the mm-hmm. idea, and I'll show you some pictures. The way we make them is first we make like a formulation in which we add five percent of relatively simple materials to solve some some of the 
scientific and technological problems. Then we grind it, and then we compress it in stainless steel molds. Okay, now, mm-hmm. and that's it. And then you have the block. So no treatment, nothing else besides that. Now these molds can be shaped in different shapes. Like we made these molds like Lego bricks. So one mm-hmm. of the questions we had to face is how do you connect them? How do you attach each each to the other one? By the way, it's not so easy to, to glue salt bricks. We always say nothing sticks to Teflon. That's right? Right. Now, nothing sticks to, to salt because these are huh. the two extremes. In a scientific jargon, we are speaking about hydrophobic, something that dislike water and hydrophilic. Mm-hmm. So Teflon is very hydrophobic. Okay, it doesn't like something which is dissolved in water. And that's why we say Teflon, nothing sticks to it. Salt is exactly on the opposite side. So it's very hydrophilic. And that's why it's very difficult to actually glue something to salt. But we solve the mm-hmm. problem. We have different ways to actually to glue such bricks together. And we know even how to coat them. It's not really necessary to code them because the solubility is relatively low. So, for example, internal, inside the, the rooms, you don't really have to code it. So think about that. A salt has a very strong antibacterial activity. No bacteria grow on salt. Okay, they cannot. Huh. So think about that. Having hospitals that have inside, internal, the, the internal rooms are coated with such either tiles or salt bricks there's not going to be any contamination there, nothing, because bacteria is not going to grow there. So there are many different applications you can think of, and we know how to do that. Again, there are still some, some different things that we, we would like to, to solve, and I think that this should come in the next step where we'll have to make a pilot. So far, we were very much limited the compressed machine that we had was at the university was very limited was went up to i think less than 100 tons and that's why our largest bricks that we manufacture were five by five by ten centimeters that's not big enough right recently by the way i submitted a project very interesting project actually this week i submitted a project that suggested and this goes back to your question initially that suggested actually to take this project, the sole project, to the next level and make a, like a like a line of production, where I suggest to do that with a special high school in Israel, which is located south in the desert, with the high school students, and we are suggesting that eventually the first construction, which is completely made of salt, will be done in this high school, so the children. We learn about the problems. We learn about the cement industry, the excess of of um, salt, and how this process works. I hope that they will help me, and we will get somehow a, pl- a place where we can manufacture bigger bricks. And eventually, what I'm planning in this project is, with the help of the children, to build first a wall and then a whole construction made of salt. And hopefully, that's going to be approved hopefully, and then we'll have also some funding to go into the second and the next step. So there is still a way to go to make it a commercial product. So far, although I've talked with different companies, mostly here in Israel, and and also some 
different people in the U.S., also in Europe. I have not been able to actually recruit a company that was willing to really invest some funds and go into a pilot. And the reason for that, as I told you, there is not incentive for them to go into that. Right. I actually work in the construction industry and there are local companies here on island that that have their own ways of producing uh, zero carbon cement. I think they inject some kind of carbon dioxide into the cement mm-hmm. as they mix yep. it. And then it creates carbon structures within the concrete. And I was really excited by that. And I was like, oh man, maybe we could use these in our projects and things. But for a lot of our projects, we're using city standards that were developed in maybe the 80s or the 90s, you know, that have just mm-hmm. been amended over the past mm-hmm. 40 years. And they and when I brought it up, they were just like, no, there's no way you're ever going to be able to use any of those on any of these projects just because, yeah, we're just we're not at the point we have to get it authorized by all these different federal government agencies right. to to be able to use it there. And so it was it was really disappointing for me that, that I really... F- was hoping that, you know, maybe I could help drive some change in the construction industry, but pretty hard to do. That's true. That's true. It takes a long time. Uh, we have to, you know, we have to learn how to work and how to actually create the driving force for that. Technology and science are not enough. Definitely. And I think I, I like the out-of-the-box thinking that you have there, like thinking about all those applications where these would work that concrete wouldn't, like the idea that you had about the hospitals having antibacterial walls and things. That's that's a really amazing application that I think hearing those kinds of things will suddenly make people go, oh, well, maybe there is a reason to switch away from this cement. Yeah, we, we, are, we are trying all the time. I can tell you about more ideas. Now, one field which grows very fast is the cannabis field. And the reason hmm. why I'm mentioning that is cannabis is grown, must be grown under very strict conditions. And it's very sensitive to bacteria. So maybe, just maybe, one way to go is to make greenhouses or places where you grow the cannabis, which are coated inside by these such salt bricks. This oh, will solve cool. the use of pesticides. This will create the correct environment for growing the cannabis under very controlled conditions. One way. We can make also these, we can make very nice tiles. Again, I'll send you maybe, um, I'll send you a presentation and Mm -hmm. I'll show you because if we compress the salt against something which is not flat, you can immediately in one step get a very nice tile that has a three-dimensional shape. Okay, I don't know if I can somehow with this, uh, I can, no, I cannot share my screen, can I? That's okay. What what I can do is if you can send it to me, then I can take pictures from it and post it on the blog and post it on the episode cover. I'll be able to see it there. I'll presentation so you can use it. And you will see that we have very nice bricks. By the way, that's something I should add. I like also art, okay? You can see actually these these pictures behind me, these paintings are made uh-huh. by me, okay? Oh, wow. I'm doing, also, I'm doing some Chinese painting. I have much more. I can send you a few more. I mean, hundreds nice. of paintings. Uh, so I always like to combine art and science. That's my philosophy. I think that this is very, very interesting by itself. I mean, I, I think that scientists should study a little bit of art and vice versa. I collaborated and I still collaborate with the School of uh, Fine School of Arts 
in Jerusalem, Bezalel, which is very well known. And I always get students from them. And there was a student who was very, very much attracted by this soul story. And she actually developed her own business. And she is still making different things for art that are made of salt. And again, mm-hmm. as a curiosity, as, or as a gimmick, we made also, for example, a tequila shot made of salt. So you don't have to add salt. And <laughs> we even made a salt shaker, which is, was completely made of salt. So oh, it's, it's a very interesting material. After you compress it, you can shape it very nicely. You can grave it and engrave there. Uh, so I think that we are not using salt, which is very popular. You use it only for one of two or two things, but we can use it much, much in different applications, much more. And that's Absolutely. why I want also to ch- the children to go into that because I'm sure that they are going to have some good ideas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The last thing that I'm kind of curious about about these blocks is when I think about the life cycle of, of the use. You've got the manufacturer, the actual use of it. But then how about in the disposal of it? Have you done any study in the disposal in fact, of these blocks? Yeah. In fact, we have a big advantage there. You see, and that's strategically speaking. Our bricks are made by a physical process, not a chemical process, which means because we grind it and we compress it, which means that if we take the brick and we grind it, we get immediately the starting materials and we can reuse it. It's not like a concrete brick. A concrete brick is made because of a chemical process. Our case is a physical process, which means that we can very easily recycle that. So once you want to take down the the wall or the, the whole construction, Simply take it, grind it, and you can reuse it immediately. So that's a big, big advantage we have. Now, we still did not do the life cycle analysis of that. We have to do that. and We have to estimate how much carbon dioxide because we still need a little bit of energy, especially for the compression, grinding and compression. But this is not compatible. This is by far from very simple calculations, I think, that's in the grant that I submitted this week, I think that we are going to save more than 95% of the carbon dioxide which is emitted as compared to concrete blocks. Okay, that's huge. That's huge difference. I think that the life cycle analysis, once we do it, will show very clearly in terms of the carbon footprint that we have is extremely low. Okay, we are not using any organics there. And the manufacturing that is carried out at room temperature as compared to 1500 degrees. We don't emit any carbon dioxide to the atmosphere in the, in the process of making it. So everything suggests that in terms of green process, we are doing much, much, much better than any type or any other sort of concrete bricks. You said you could even reuse it after you've taken it down. So I'm, I'm- my imagination immediately goes to, you know, tearing down a building and then using the materials from the torn down building to start building a new building in its place. Could you theoretically do that? Basically, yes. Maybe, maybe in the future, if we have to coat it with something, we'll have how somehow to separate the coating material. But in, in principle, this should be doable. I mean, recycling should be much, much simpler to anything else. 
anything that else. Yeah, it's the same material. You start with the same material. That's it. Interesting. Oh, we man. introduced that to the Japanese a group of Japan, and they were very thrilled. They were very fascinated by this fact that you can renew it very easily. Yeah, yeah, that's something I've thought about a lot. With obviously working on construction sites, you know, anytime we do demolition, yeah. it's like we've got to throw away a whole lot yeah. of concrete, which sure. just goes and gets thrown in a landfill somewhere. And I think every time, like. Is there not some way that we could be reusing this? Well, they, they are trying now to reuse it. You cannot just reuse it for building. They're making some other things out of concrete. They grind it and so on, which costs a lot of energy as well. But in our case, you, you simply start from the beginning. That's it. It's, it's right. as if you are, you know, sitting on a, in the beach, making a sand castle, and then you want to rebuild it. You take it and rebuild it. It's the same thing. <laughs> That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Man, I would love to see more of that in the future. It would just be cool, even as a pilot project, to just see, you know, yeah. build a building and then immediately just tear it down and build another one using the materials over again. Yeah. I think that you'll see that soon, hopefully soon. Now, it sounds like you have a lot of different projects that you've gone through. And it sounds like with almost all of the ones that you told me about today, it sounds like they all have some kind of an environmental taste to them. So yeah. it sounds to me like you care about the environment. Would that be a pretty accurate assessment? Absolutely. I also like hiking very much. I like nature. I go out and paint in the nature. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, seeing all the paintings behind you, I see a lot of what looks like mountains and rivers. Yeah. I'll and send you some more. You'll see. I like painting outside. I see myself part, part of nature, and nature is very, very important for me. Look, you have to understand nowadays that in the academy, eh, most of the money goes for applied research. So, mm. you know, the days that we were getting money to do some basic research, well, I wouldn't say are almost gone, but most of the money now, most of funding now has to be justified. And it's always the question what it is good for. Singapore right. is very very strong. I mean, in Singapore, to get substantial funding, you have to justify why is it good for Singapore. Now, and that's why I think that much of the research that you will find nowadays will take into account environmental issues. And the, the question of how this affects environment is, is becoming more and more important. Right. Personally, also, because I like that and I, I feel that, you know, what we do is we should somehow have to take this into account. I like also very much the educational part. I'm also a teacher. I like also teaching and, and lecturing. I do it very often in high school, voluntarily, obviously, because mm -hmm. I want to attract the children to thinking to scientific thinking scientific thinking about the environment i think that's extremely important yeah absolutely so that's part of me definitely now we ask all of our guests 
on this show what the environment means to them. Because we find that everybody has their own unique thing that they think of when they think about the environment. Sure, we can all say that, you know, the environment is mountain trees and air and ocean, but everybody has their own special personal meaning of what the environment means to them. When they think of the environment, maybe they think of a campsite that they went to when they were a kid, or maybe uh, a hill that was behind their house. You know, there's something um, that they can think of that is, you know, tangible to them. They can think of the emotions that it brings. They can think of their unique experiences there. So I wonder for you, what does the environment mean to you? Well, that's a tough question. So philosophically answering this question is then I'll send you to read about Spinoza. Spinoza was a very interesting Jewish guy who lived in in Amsterdam, actually was expelled from the Jewish community because of his idea. But in a way, he he is considered to be the philosopher of the philosophers. Okay, and in a way, he was the first guy who was talking about the environment because what he claimed was that environment equals God and God Mm. equals environment. Mm-hmm. So philosophically speaking, I think that his attitude is very nice, very interesting, that you take it, you take the environment as a, as a complete system. Mm-hmm. Now, to be a little bit more down to earth, so obviously, I think this project of the soul bricks is very much connected to that. Uh-huh. Um, I think my the way I do... M- art and so on is very much connected to environment. I like hiking very much. So I have really to think about something that will fit into what you are looking for. Well, tell me about your hiking. It sounds like if you do a lot of hiking, do you ever think about the places that you hike or the places that you've been before when you when you think about your work? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I like very long hiking, uh, not only in Israel, but everywhere, everywhere in the world. Uh-huh. I enjoy very much nature, and painting in the nature for me is the highest level, I would say. Really? Enjoying nature, yeah. For me, is there is nothing more than that. So, I, But I like very much hiking. So, I wonder, what are some of your favorite places that you've been to hike and paint? Okay, to hike and paint, so normally I do painting in Israel. When I go abroad, it's a little bit more difficult, although I bring it also to Singapore and some other places because then uh-huh. I, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit uh, limited in Singapore for example I like very much uh, painting and I do it quite often in the botanical gardens which is probably the nicest place in Singapore in Israel I like very much going besides painting in Jerusalem which is very interesting by itself and combines in a way combines all the new I like very much uh, painting in the desert, uh-huh. which has its own beauty. Uh, I painted in different places in the world. I hiked from Nepal to the Canadian Rockies and so on and so on. So wow. What is it you like to capture when you're painting? Like, Is there something in particular that you're trying to capture? I like very much the water. And uh-huh. I had many projects uh, about monitoring water at the european project that was in in italy 
uh, and I like also swimming and so on. But I think water is 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 in a way is really attracting me very yeah. much. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds like you definitely find nature to be very visually appealing because to me the the fact that you want to draw and that you feel drawn to want to paint it and represent it and remember it that way to me suggests that you really have strong feelings towards the visual beauty of nature absolutely yeah but but also when i go out and and i hike and so on or i paint i'm always thinking about what are the problems and how i can solve them there are many, many, many questions that still need to be answered. Interesting. No, that's yeah, really so. interesting to me that that you look at nature and at the same time that you're looking at it and appreciating how beautiful it is, you also are looking for things that you can fix there, right? You have that scientific angle of of looking at it and appreciating it on the visual level and also on the what can I do to make this better? Because I'll tell you something which is, again, on a philosophical level. The artist is exactly like the scientist. Why? For example, a painter, the way he looks at nature is different than a normal person. What the artist, what the painter, the way he sees nature is through his eyes. And he sees, for example, when you take a child outside, and you look at the at the forest and you ask the child what color is the forest and he will say green but the artist for him it's not green it can be of all the spectrum of the colors because he sees the nature through his eyes and through a skilled person that is actually looking for the way to actually represent through his head and hand the nature and the scientist does exactly the same way. He has like different eyes. Again, right. skilled eyes to look at the nature, analyze what is or what are the problems that are still looking for a solution. So in a way, the scientist and the artist, they simply look at nature with different eyes that the normal public looks at nature. And this hmm. gives a huge, huge power for them to analyze and to represent the nature on one hand in a painting, on the other hand in the development of an invention or something like that. But I think it's the same way. And that's why, for example, the, the person that I, when one of the persons that I really admire is obviously Leonardo da Vinci, yes. who was the person to combine art and science so successfully. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's exactly who I thought about earlier when you were talking about art and science. The, the first thing that I thought of was yeah. Da Vinci. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was yeah. the person. Definitely. Yeah. Now, from what I'm hearing, I'm hearing that when you experience nature, you experience it with an appreciation for the beauty. I hear also a fascination and a curiosity that comes from it, a desire to want to help and to solve problems in it. And I wonder, thinking about those feelings, this is completely optional, but is there something that you could think of that you could do to act 
on those feelings. So we have some different conditions. It doesn't have to be the biggest thing or the most important thing. It's not about solving climate change overnight. It's about doing something that is meaningful to you. The point is to act on something that you care about. So it has to be a new behavior. So something that you're not already doing, preferably something measurable and something that you do yourself. So it can't just be, you know, teaching other people things or telling other people to do something. And it has to kind of leave the world better in some little way. Is there anything that you could think of that you'd want to try? Well, I'll have to think about that because right now I don't have anything special on my mind, but I'll definitely think and let you know about that. Um, I don't know. That's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, I can tell you, look, I will stop eating, I don't know, meat right. or something like that. But it's, that's too trivial. No, I'm, I'm not looking for something trivial. So I'll have to think about that. Okay. It's probably ha will have to be somehow connected to my activities in a way. But sure. uh, I'll, I'll have to think about that, okay? Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, I think that for a lot of our guests, a lot of them immediately jump to like the ones that they read in National Geographic, you know, oh, I got to stop eating meat or I got to reduce my driving or I got to stop flying or something like that. But we find that it's often much better not to focus on how big or small it is, but it's just doing something that you enjoy that's going to make you think more about those things that you mentioned. So those things about being in nature, appreciating its beauty, seeing if you can improve it in some way. And if it's something that makes those things better, then oftentimes it's going to be something that you're going to enjoy doing and you're going to want to do more of. And it's not going to be something that's like, oh, I have to sacrifice doing this. It's something that instead becomes part of you. I am a person who does this because I appreciate this aspect of, of nature and the environment. So if there's anything you can think of, uh, something that you've always wanted to try, potentially, sometimes there are people who just say, you know, I've always wanted to try doing this, even if it's only for a week or a day. There are people who do it that way. And then there are people who go the complete opposite for the This Sustainable Life main branch of the podcast that is done by Professor Joshua Spodek at NYU. He's actually had people who went as far as selling their car for the challenge and just not driving anymore, which okay. something very, very big. But we've had people do things, you know, as small as, you know, doing a weekly beach cleanup for a month or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if there's something you'd like to do, or if you'd like to think more on it, that's also fine. And we can even, um, if you want to come back on a second time to talk more, we'd love to have you back on. Again, I don't have right now an idea that I I will be glad to have. Hmm. So I'll have to think about that. And we can either do it on a second time or a... I don't know. I, I'll have to think about that. Fantastic. Not a problem. Well, I would love to have you back on a second time. You talked about a lot of really interesting things that I didn't get to completely cover. So thank you so much well, for coming more. on. I, I usually, I, for example, I give lectures in high school about chemistry of fingerprints. Okay, because huh. that's, again, that this attracts children to science and so on. That's very easy to sell. And we are doing some amazing work on that. But let's leave something for the next time. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. Is there any last words that you want to say? Any messages you want to leave for the listeners before you go? I think that what you're doing is, is really very, very interesting and very important. I do hope that the listeners, they can contact me directly. I can provide the ways to contact me. I, I'm always willing to, and I will reply to anyone who will contact me and ask questions. I think what's important is really to, to somehow make people to think about that. And I think that's the whole idea while this podcast, not to accept the things the way they are, hmm. to question. And that's part of the Jewish tradition that we don't accept things uh, so easily, but we question. And I think that's very, very important when you deal with environment is environmental issues and you, be, you think about how the world that we live in, how that's going to be in the future. It's our responsibility for that. And we have to make people to think about that. So thank Absolutely. you very much for this opportunity that you gave me. I'd be glad to send you some. I think that you, I have your email address. I'm pretty sure I have it. So I'll send you some more things through the email. And Great. I will be in touch. And yeah, there will be a Absolutely. second time. Yeah, I'll be sure that we get the pictures and things up on the sure. blog and on the cover for the podcast episode. Are there any websites or links that you want to leave in case yeah, people want to go and a, learn more about the bricks? Yeah, we have a website which is called Salamuro. Salamuro is a wall made of salt in Esperanto. Esperanto, as you know, was a try by a Jewish guy to make an international language. It was not very yeah. successful. There are some places also in the U.S. where people can study Esperanto. So Salamuro is a salt wall in Esperanto. I'll send you also the link to that. Fantastic. I'll have him down below. Professor Daniel Mandler, thank you so much for coming on, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much, Eugene. Take care. Okay, so we're back on again. Just to give the listeners a little bit of a recap of what has happened, you actually sent me an email shortly after we got off our first recording saying that you had actually thought up a challenge, something that you think would be a good challenge to do. And so we decided to set up a second recording here, not too much longer after our first recording. I'm excited to hear what your challenge was. But first, before we get into that, I'm curious to know if there was any kind of impetus behind it. Because like I said, we always kind of start with an experience or feelings about the environment because we feel like if the challenge that we take on is connected to feelings that we have, if it's motivated by feelings that we have, then you're going to be much more likely to enjoy the challenge. So I wonder if if the challenge that you thought of, was there was there something that was in your mind or in your heart when you thought about that challenge in the environment? Well, not exactly, but was it developed slightly differently. Okay. Okay. So I have to mention here also my wife, Daphna, who is also a chemist. But she, after her second degree, she went on and did her third degree, her PhD in science education at the Weizmann Institute. She works at the Weizmann Institute and she, in fact, teaches high school students. And she has a very interesting project where she actually teaches the principles of chemistry through the kitchen. So she even publishes every second week an article in one of the websites in Israel. 
where she brings also one of a recipe and she discusses for example the things like the oil or things like bread and so on she explains the ideas of of chemistry and the principles of chemistry through the kitchen great now recently she told me that there was actually a Nobel Prize winner was a physicist and he actually made a lot of uh, was a lot of impact by saying that there is a way to make pasta with much less energy and he suggested that instead of cooking the pasta for a long time or I don't know 11 minutes or so that after you boil the water and put the pasta inside you simply turn off the heat and Uh-huh. And you let the pasta cook by the warm water. Sure, just the residual heat. Yeah, and this actually started a, a whole discussion about how to cook with much less energy. And this is well known also here in Singapore, that if you, if you soak the pasta in cold water for a long time, you don't have to boil the water. And this gave me the idea... To try and that's what I'm going to suggest and I'm going to try one month or maybe even more to try I like cooking very much okay I should add this I like sure it's is it, my hobbies is also cooking so cooking is you know is doing chemistry so it's not so different so <laughs> I very much to try and apply these ideas and try to cook with as less energy as possible so this is quite different than Probably what you have heard so far and uh, it will be really uh, thinking about how to do that how can you for example make an egg with almost more energy or right. how to make pasta or rice or other things with much much less energy than we are using right now so it will take me some time and I'll be very glad to tell you more about that after experience it with my wife and Because now she's actually trying to gather from different places because some some idea I don't know if papers or idea and so on have already appeared about that mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure that many of the things that we are using can be cooked with much much less energy than what we are using right now so that's that's what I'm proposing to try it on myself and by the way the Italian cuisine is my favorite uh-huh so I can eat pasta almost every day oh I'm with you there <laughs> yeah so I'd like to try that and see how we can uh, eating more or less the same thing how we can try to do that with much much less energy interesting that's, that's the whole idea yeah that's the idea I have not heard that idea for a challenge ever before so we want to make this a A smart goal I don't know if you've heard of smart goals it just stands for specific <clears throat> specific measurable achievable realistic and time bound so we need some way of quantifying the challenge like when have we completed the challenge when will we be able to say we have completed the challenge how much we are going to do it you did say that you were going to try for maybe a month or a little bit more than a month so that's mm-hmm. good there I wonder if there's some way that we quantify the Yeah. that's a good question uh, it will be difficult well I I can try but not maybe not here in Singapore but when I'm back to Israel I might be able to try and see and quantify it in a way 
that, you know, instead of, for example, cooking pasta at 100 degrees, then I, if I can cook pasta at 20 degrees or, 20, or 30 degrees, so this will be some kind of quantifying it. I can also calculate how many calories I saved. That's also possible. That's not very difficult to do. That's sure. Easy. I would uh, say that we could even do something like you could say you'll try to make three different dishes with approximately half the usual energy or less okay. or something like that's, that. That's fair enough. I that, hope that I can even reduce it more than that. There you yeah, go. That, this, would be, this would be nice. And I can uh, even report and send you, if you want, uh, the results. And, and then I'll, I'll even suggest to the listeners how they can also implement the same things. So I will come with the three recipes for saving energy while cooking. Perfect. Is that good enough? Absolutely. Oh man, well, I'm so excited. And the, the engineer in me is is so curious to know how you're going to accomplish that. Because that's something that I've never even thought of before. I've never tried to think about how much energy I use when cooking. I'll be really, really excited to hear how both of you end up approaching the challenge and whether you end up enjoying it or not, or whether it just ends up being just really hard and frustrating. <laughs> it's <been> very late. <laughs> <laughs> so about how long do you think it'll take until you feel like you've had kind of a, a meaningful experience with your challenge? Maybe enough time to complete it and then maybe think about it, process it. I think a month. A month would be enough. Okay. I believe All right. that in a month I should be able to report. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Excellent. Professor Mandler. Thank you again for coming back to come with a challenge. That that has actually never happened before where I've had someone refuse the challenge, but then come back to me and say, hey, wait, I actually have a challenge that I want to do. So thank you so much. I really appreciate that you did that. You're mostly welcome. And I enjoy that very much. And I think that, again, you're doing something which is really, really fascinating and exciting and uh, also contributes significantly to the way we need to educate the public to think about what and how we do and manage our life. So thank you very much, Eugene. I really enjoyed that. Hey guys, Eugene here from Verdant Growth and host of This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature. I've been doing this podcast for a few months now, and I could use some help. I just don't have the time to edit episodes like I did during the pandemic, and I've had to hire an editor. I don't have enough to pay them for as many episodes as I'd like to do per month. If you're interested in supporting me and my podcast, try donating, one time or monthly. Even one dollar helps. I love doing this show, but I can't do it as much as I'd like without your help. If you can't donate, just hit that subscribe button or tell your friends. Me and the rest of the world could use your help. Let's work together to make this planet we call home a great place through sustainability. Thank you.